Welcome to STEM Punks. STEM Punks is a bi-monthly podcast intended to bring science, technology, engineering, straight to your ears from our STEM Punk studio. Hang on, we'll take you for a ride that includes a whole lot of fun and a little bit of education on the side. Stay tuned. Nice to be in orbit. Welcome to the STEM Punks Podcast. My name is Joe Garut, and I will be your host. And of course, as always, I'm joined by my buddy, Stembot. Hello, Stembot. Hello, Joe. You know, our goal on this podcast is to have fun, <laughs> offer some new information, and make connections between STEM and just about everything, including the wholeness of life. Approaching everything with my mind partially focused on the larger picture of life as a whole is the very key to my existence. And that may sound kind of philosophical, but thinking that way helps me stay in alignment with my core beliefs, my why. Now, this connection between the two led me to an interesting place a while back. I used to be an avid steelhead fly fisherman. I was passionate passionate to the point of obsession. Now, on the surface, what I have to tell you is a story about fishing, something I can speak to with some knowledge because I've been doing it for most of my life. But under the surface, like when you're out there wading in a river, casting the line, searching for some life down there, there's much more going on than we sometimes realize, both in that water and in life. Now, I don't want to turn this into a deep dive, so don't tune out just yet. Let's just say I love fishing. There's an eternal optimism one develops when they go. It's actually mandatory in steelhead fishing because there are so many casts in between fish. Now, the quiet of the remote locations and the burble of the water going around and over rocks is calming and is a great reminder of how much more there is to life than grinding away in an office. Yet, in all of that, something was gnawing at me. I stopped going to the river about a year ago when I read an article about fish feeling pain. I know, I know, you may be thinking, well, that's just a ridiculous place to be, but just, just follow me here. As I was journeying down this enlightened life path of mine, it occurred to me that the fish I was seeking connection with was a living creature that I was toying with for my amusement. Now, how could I be such an enlightened person and not realize how I was impacting their life, even temporarily? So, I stopped. Now, let's fast forward to an opportunity that I had to reconnect with some old buddies. As we decided to catch up for lost time, we planned a camping trip in which we could meet and do some steelhead fishing, like we did 20 or so years ago. Now, I was on board. I missed these guys, and I thought, well, you know, I'll, I'll just fish without the bend of the hook. In other words, I wouldn't have any way to actually hook the fish. It could strike, I'd feel that momentary connection, and then it would swim away without any pain. See ya. No problem, right? Well, as you'll find out in this podcast, it was more of a struggle than I thought. Now, in preparation, I started to do a little research to find out just what I could about fish feeling pain. I wanted to know what was going on inside their tiny little brain. Hey, look at that fly. I first read a research paper and then a book entitled Do Fish Feel Pain by Victoria Braithwaite about just that topic. 
Not long after I began this research, the time came for the trip. I went a day early, and I recorded some of my thoughts on the way out to the river. Stembot, will you please play that audio clip? Okie dokie. Well, good morning. I'm on the way. I've got a lot of mixed emotions about this, but generally, I'm super happy about it. I'm on this trip because I want to see my buddies. And that's why I'm going. I am caught in this quandary about something I read a while back. And that is that fish feel pain. What I discovered was is that there's scientific evidence to prove that they feel pain. I can't imagine disrupting the fishing industry. I can't imagine taking away the pleasure that so many people that I know and people that I don't know get from the act of fishing. It's an incredible feeling to do what we do, to do what a fisherman does when, when you're in it, when you have the gear and you have the knowledge to go out and pursue these creatures. And I would like to say too, I want to clarify that catching fish to eat them, no problem. I would do that. I would do that. If I wanted to eat them, I would catch them and eat them. And I don't have a problem with that. I have always advocated catch and release fishing because I have seen catch and release work. This trip, the idea that these creatures that live their life with a focus on survival and breeding and that we go out and disrupt that for our pleasure, that's a tough struggle for me personally. I think at this point it'd be a good opportunity to bring in our guest for today. Stembot, will you please connect that call? Sure, Joe. I got you covered. I have on the phone with me today Professor Victoria Braithwaite. She is the Dorothy and Lloyd Huck Chair in Behavioral Biology, Professor of Fisheries and Biology at Penn State. And you have received your doctorate in philosophy from Oxford University, is that right? Yes, that's right. That was some time ago, though. Well, Victoria, we are thrilled to have you on the show with us today. Now, I see by looking at your website that you teach wildlife and fisheries science, bioethics, biology, ecology, forest resources, and neuroscience. Yeah, there's quite a lot in there, isn't there? A lot to unpack. That's where my research is focused, and I have students who work with me in all of those different areas because I have interest in those areas. But when it comes to my teaching in terms of in a lecture theatre or teaching directly with undergraduate students, there are two core themes that I teach, and those are animal behaviour and also animal welfare, science and ethics. What you do is far more than just standing around in a laboratory watching beakers bubble. I mean, as a scientist, that's a lot of times what I think of anyway as a lab code and very sterile environment, but you actually take that outside of the building, don't you? I do, and actually I think that's really important because when we're looking at animals, 
you know, we're looking at animals that evolved in different kinds of environments. And we can bring those in the animals into the lab and we can study them in very controlled conditions when we do that. But what we're missing at that point is the ecology and the way in which the animal has evolved to actually cope with different things that it has to face in those environments. One of the things we've done is uh, work in Panama, for example, where we've been working on different populations of fish that live in very different predation areas. So some of the populations we look at are, uh, suffer from very high levels of predation. There's lots of predators and it's a very dangerous environment. But we also have populations where we go and there's very few predators. So that sets up a really nice comparative situation where we can say, well, how does the predation pressure really impact on the behavior of the fish that we're seeing? So we, so we take these careful observations that we make in the field. We can come up with some hypotheses then that we can actually test but to really do that very carefully and very well, we often end up bringing populations of fish back to the lab where we can then ask these more specific questions in a more controlled environment. So there's a combination of the two, field work and lab work. That's right. Going back to the sort of really fundamental bit of what I'm interested in, which is to understand animal behavior, I think you have to do both those. Now, one thing that I have read is that there are not a lot of women in STEM. Do you find that to be true or are we just not hearing about it? So this this is an interesting question. When I started out, that was the case. And when I got my first faculty position, which was uh, at Edinburgh University in Scotland, I was one of only two women on the faculty, and everybody else was male. And now, when I'm teaching undergraduate courses, I absolutely have equal numbers of male and female students. And uh, in many cases, for some of the courses, particularly animal behavior, interestingly, I often have more women students in the class. So I think it's a really positive trend that has changed, and we're seeing more students coming through now who are getting the qualifications who will go on and will get the faculty jobs. So within the life sciences, for sure, you're going to see more women. In the other sciences, so engineering, physics, math, for example, things are changing there too. Things are also changing for the positive, but it's lagging behind a little. So I think the changes that we will see there coming through are certainly beginning to happen, and that's fantastic. It's how it should be. That's wonderful. So there's definitely lots of opportunity in all fields in STEM for both genders. Absolutely. If you've got an interest in something, it doesn't matter whether you're a boy or a girl, you, you go for it. If you've got questions that you're interested in trying to answer, there's no reason why you can't do that. Your gender is not going to stop you from doing that. Excellent. All right. Now, let's move on to the reason that I'm calling you. You have written a book that I have read, which I thoroughly enjoyed, by the way, and it is called Do Fish Feel Pain? As a catch-and-release fly fisherman, I began to sort of find myself struggling with whether or not I was injuring these creatures that I was revering. What is your perception of what a fish may be going through during that particular process of being hooked and then fought to the bank? So I think from the fish's perspective, it's probably a little bit like a predation event. And we've already talked a little bit about how, you know, animals in the real world have to face certain challenges like predation. So in some ways, it won't be completely alien to the fish. To a certain extent, the fish is equipped to deal, you know, in terms of the stresses that it's going to feel as it's being hooked. But there are other things that you're doing which are slightly unnatural to what a predator will be doing. So once it's on the line, it's caught, and then you are reeling it in, which, depending on the type of fishing that you're doing and, and how you're doing it, you know, that can be a fairly lengthy process, and that can actually cause a certain amount of exhaustion in the fish. And during that whole time, the fish is unable to get away. So there will be certain responses that are going on that are above and beyond what the fish has evolved to cope with. And so I think those are things that we should be thinking about. 
Okay. And that would have to do with uh, cortisol buildup and other chemicals that are going to an excessive level. Is that kind of how that works? Yes. Yes. So the stress system, just like in humans, when we get stressed, we have hormones that, that come in and we start to get sweaty palms and our heart might start beating a little faster. Many of these automatic physiological responses, which are trying to help us cope with the stress, uh, will certainly be kicking in. You know, these, these systems will be coming online as the fish is going through these processes. The problem is, is that when those, those can go into a sort of critical state or a chronic state, which can take a long time for the animal to recover from afterwards. Okay. All right. Since my goal here is not to try to make a podcast to convince people to not fish, and I also believe that if somebody is catching fish for their own consumption, that that's certainly reasonable to do. But in the catch and release world, uh, my understanding is that there are things that we can do to at least lessen the trauma. What should we be doing as far as handling the fish once we get it to the bank? So I'm just going to rewind a little bit and just say from the outset that I'm also not saying people shouldn't go out and fish. I think there's a lot of benefit that comes from having anglers and fly fishermen that go out and uh, interact with nature. These are some of the best stewards we have for the environment. So I see this actually, it's not something we should be looking to change. But I do think there is best practice. And uh, interestingly, many of the fishermen that I know know these things instinctively already and, and do these things. So the kinds of things you pointed out are, you know, don't excessively exhaust the fish. And then when you do catch the fish, be extremely careful how you handle it. And one of the things we do know that fish really don't do well with, particularly species like trout, salmon and so forth, is being exposed to the air. They find that extremely stressful and that does take time to recover from. So keeping the fish underwater... You know, we have technology now that allows us to take that picture, the, the photograph, using an underwater camera or using a case on the camera that you have. So uh, given that we can do that, that would be much better practice. And so I would encourage people to do that. Similarly, with holding the fish, being very gentle and careful. Uh, when we hold fish, particularly in the field, we'll use gloves, actually, so that we're not breaking that mucus layer on the outside, which is a protective layer for the fish. So that layer is very important. And if you do handle the fish too, too roughly when the fish is in the air, you know, you really do have the potential to be damaging that. So... In order to try and formulate an answer about whether or not they felt pain, you had to discern a certain set of criteria for what pain actually meant, right? Um, I think That's that right. there were two or three questions that you had to ask yourself, if I remember from the book correctly. That's right. You try to determine what are the answers that you need to be convinced by the end of it that you, you, you've addressed the problem and you've been able to show either definitively yes, they do, or no, they don't. The first question was very simply, you know, do the fish actually have within their nervous system the equipment that's needed to actually process pain stimuli? Does the fish actually have the the nerves and the nerve fibers that are going to convey that information in the same way that they do in us and they do in birds uh, where we've studied these processes at length. The next question is, is that, well, if those fibers are there, can we actually take electrophysiological recordings? Can we actually detect that they are being stimulated when something damaging occurs? To do those experiments, we really work very hard at making sure we're not using too many animals. We're using just enough to be able to determine the answer to the questions. We're also using animals that are under deep anesthesia at this point. So in actual fact, they're not feeling anything. And then the final one is to say, well, from a behavioral perspective, can we actually determine whether the behavior of the fish is affected by what it's just experienced? And if that's painful, do we see a certain kind of behavior that kicks in? And uh, how, is, how is the animal changing that? And does that get reversed if we provide some kind of pain relief? So, so those were the three different areas. 
is the neuroanatomy there? If we stimulate those nerves, can we detect things? And then from a behavioral perspective, when the animal is actually moving around on its own and it experiences something that's painful, how does the behavior change and how might that be affected if we provide pain relief? Thank you for that. I remember from reading the book that uh, those three questions, you detailed how you went through each step to determine uh, the answer to each of those questions, and it was just fascinating. So for those of you listening, I do recommend, if you're interested in this topic, Victoria Braithwaite's book, Do Fish Feel Pain? Stembot, will you put a link in the show notes for that? Okie dokie. Thank you. Okay, so let's just do a little wrap-up here about what you concluded. Do they feel pain? Okay, so going through the quick list, when you look for the, for the nerves, uh, they're present. When we stimulate those, you're able to detect that the, there's an electrical current running through those nerve fibers and passing information on to specific areas of the brain. I think for me, being in an animal behavior uh, researcher, the most compelling evidence came when we started to look at this in animals that were actually swimming around. And what we did was to try and get into the fish's head and sort of say, you know, if you're experiencing something painful, are you able to concentrate in the same way as, as you normally would? So what we've done with that experiment is shown that when you give the fish something that we believe is painful and you look at how it's behaving, its ability to behave normally and respond to things in the environment is impaired and it's now showing non-normal, non-natural behavior. But if you take the pain away by providing some kind of pain relief, we now see normal behavior reinstated. So we believed at the time that was really quite a powerful way of trying to argue that, yes, the fish is actually experiencing pain because now when it's cognitively involved with its environment and it's making decisions about where it should be in the environment, the pain processes that it appears to be experiencing are actually affecting how it's behaving. Fascinating. And so now here we are in 2018. Um, obviously, you have been continuing to live in this world of research around this topic. Uh, has the rest of the science community come over to this way of thinking, or is there still a debate about whether or not fish feel pain? There's still a debate, and that's really surprised me, and, and I found it very interesting. And in fact, I would say it's been a very interesting part of the scientific process. So uh, when you have a debate going, you know, you have the two sides. So you have the side who say, well, we believe fish feel pain. And then you have other groups who are going, no, 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 they can't. They don't have a brain that's like ours. Their brain is much simpler. They don't have the structures in their brain that are going to allow them to experience pain and, and so on and so forth. So we end up with these two sides who are trying to convince the other that they're wrong. And what's interesting about that process, I would say, is, is that's how science works and it's how science can work really well because what it requires us to do is to become sharper and better and design perhaps a new experiment that we might need to do which is going to demonstrate what it is that we're trying to do. So they were, even though we had done this behavior experiment, which I still do believe personally is demonstrating that the fish is experiencing the pain, there were a number of doubters out there and they have become this group who publish papers and, and still express very strong views, firm views, that because the fish has such a different brain, it simply isn't possible for it to experience pain in the way that we do. First thing I would say about that is that's absolutely true. A fish brain is much simpler, and the fish is never going to experience pain in the way that we do. But a bird isn't going to experience pain in the way that we do, but we believe birds feel pain. And, you know, your pet dog isn't going to feel pain in the way that you do. Even though it has a brain that's a bit more similar to ours, it's still different. Um, so it's not going to be able to process pain in the way that we do. But we believe our dogs feel pain when they've trapped their paw in the door or, or whatever has happened. 
similarly for cats and so forth. So if we're prepared to extend these capacities to, say, birds and other mammals, why do we exclude fish? And I'm still a little bit puzzled by that one, but the debate continues. Well, Victoria, thank you so much for your time today. Is there anything that you feel like you need to include that I haven't asked you about this topic? Uh, no, I think I think we've covered a lot of ground there, and uh, you probably know a lot more about fish pain than you were expecting at the <laughs> beginning of all of this, but I hope you found it interesting, and um, I hope I've persuaded you that they do. Well, your book and our conversation today have given me a lot to think about. At a minimum, I'll be using best practices when I do handle these fish. Excellent. That all sounds very good. And, uh, you know, I'm really pleased to hear that because I think the the more widespread that we could make uh, best practice a regular part of of what is, uh, you know, a a huge hobby and sport and pastime, then all the better for everyone, actually, the fish and the fishermen. I agree. Again, Professor Victoria Braithwaite, thank you so much for your time on the show today. You're very welcome. It was great talking to you. Thank you. You know, that was a great interview, Stembot. I really enjoyed that. Me too. <laughs> I thought you would. You know, could you call up that fishing story I was telling from the river? Oh, sure. No problem. Thanks, buddy. Would you like some water sounds to go along with it? Well, Stembot, that's a fine idea. Yes, thank you. So here was the deal. I get down there, and I realize that I don't have what I need to cut the bend off the hook after all. I had forgotten to bring some side cutters. So I thought, all right, the scientific way of doing this would be that I would go ahead and fish like this until my buddies get there, and and maybe they've got something. And so I started fishing. And after fishing for a little while, I did get a take with the hook on and then didn't hook the fish. And the feeling, the sinking feeling that I had at that moment was a real indicator that the rest of that encounter was missing. And so for that reason, I decided to go ahead and continue fishing that way. So I left the bend on the hook. Just I fished normally, barbless. It wasn't until the last day, after having contact with several more fish over the course of four days, on the last day I ended up hooking three different fish. The fight was phenomenal. I was able to easily release the one that I got to the bank. One I had take fervently. I mean, the reel screamed. It took off running just as soon as it made any contact. And even the guy across the bank said, oh, that's a good one. He was only on for a, a brief amount of time. He, she was only on for a brief amount of time. And then it was just gone. Nothing there. And that was fine. I got a little bit out of it, but I was still missing the rest of that fight. And then the final fish that I hooked, I was fishing a skating fly. So it skates across the surface, leaving a little bit of a wake. So it's something you can watch, which is way more fun. I was talking to this guy across the river while I was fishing that way, and and it was choppy water, so I was kind of losing track of where the fly was. As we were talking, my eyes were in the general vicinity of where it ought to be, and I saw a big boil in the water and a noisy splash at the same time of a fish that tried to take the fly and missed it. That's exciting. At that point, it's like cat and mouse. The cat has just barely missed that ball or that toy that you're playing with, but you know it's there to play. So I went back again with the same cast in the same area, and it came after it twice more. Whoosh! Whoosh! And missed it both times. So, again, you know that this fish is is definitely interested. At that point, I swung it again, and nothing happened. Then you start wondering, do I need to change flies? Do I need to step downriver? Did it settle back into a different position? What I did at that point was switch to a different fly and cast to it a couple more times, both shorter 
and then back in the same position and then took a step down river and no response to any of those. I took a second step down river, no response, and I thought, well, I'm going to give it one more cast, and if I don't have a, a take on this one, I'm going to step back up to where I started, go back to the original fly, and see if I can bring him back up, because it was really that waking that, that got him. Well, that one more step, that third step down the river, as soon as I swung through that same area, it was just a little lower. He climbed on, and we had a fight that was amazing. He jumped out of the water five, six, I think even seven times. It's a beautiful fish, but I never got him all the way in because uh, after we fought for a little while and I got close to the bank, all of a sudden he just came unpinned, and away he went. But I got that journey out of it. After listening to the science behind Professor Braithwaite's studies, I am going to be pondering this topic for a while. I will say, however, that this likely will take place on the river with my line in the water, seeking another steelhead. The important thing is that it's more than just catching fish. I like everything about the trip. I like the solitude, sitting at camp with no one else around, no disturbances from another human being. It's then that the smallest details become apparent. The sounds, the view, the animals, Stillness has been a part of my journey, finding an inner stillness. It can seem far off. There are times in our lives when we try to find stillness, to try and recognize it, but it escapes us. Sometimes we have to make a small moment happen and recognize that it's there. And as we capture that, we can then make those moments a little bigger. And once we practice, the moments will become even larger and more fulfilling. Thank you for listening to the STEM Punks Podcast. The STEM Punks Podcast is brought to you by Cotty Wample Creative. Fantastic art doesn't make itself, so let Cotty Wample Creative make it for you. And by our fans on Patreon. Thank you, April, Bert, Beth, Caitlin, David, Michael, Janice, John, Kit, Melody, Michael, Mike, Rose, Sandra, Sora, and Tom. Thank you for your patronage. Without your help, this podcast wouldn't be possible. Say goodbye, Stembot. Goodbye, Stembot. The water temperature in a week, just over a week, has dropped from 52 degrees to 39 degrees. I have stocking footed waders on, and uh, Consequently, my feet are freezing, and mine have a leak, so I'm, I think I'm risking frostbite here on my feet, and I'm, I'm not really kidding. They've numbed up enough to where I have this dull ache, and yet I can't stop casting. This is how addictive it is. Like, I just want to keep casting. I, I, there's this potential. There could be this fish. and I can't stand the idea of getting out of the water and going home because my feet are cold. It's crazy. <laughs>